Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Public Health Cast, where we put the public in public health. I'm going to be your host for today, Jeff Gillingham. I am the co-chair of the uh, Coaching and Collaborations Committee for the CHPPD section of the APHA. I am extremely excited to be having our guest on today um, that we're going to be interviewing. Uh, it is, her name is Jamale Telez lieberman She is a doctoral candidate in the Department of Community Health and Prevention at the Dornsife School of Public Health at Drexel University. I wanted to add a little point of clarification after the fact that Jamale is pursuing a DRPH and not specifically a PhD. She also got her MPH in Community Health and Prevention from the Dornsife School of Public Health at Drexel University and holds a BA in International Studies from Elon University. Um, her research interests include Latino immigrant health, art and public health practice and research, maternal and child health, mixed methods research, community-based research, um, and she is the project manager for the Between the Lines study um, as well. Jamale, how are you doing today? Hi, Jeff. Um, I'm doing great. I'm so excited to be here in this virtual space uh, to talk about public health, my number one love in my life, um, <laughs> and also very excited to be able to finally talk about the work that we've been doing these past couple years, which has been kind of in the shadows a little bit for the protection of the communities that we work with. And so this is really a great opportunity to start sharing with the world what we've been working so hard for. Um, and I'm just so glad and, and honored that you invited me to participate in this podcast. Excellent. So to start off, since we're um, talking about immigration, uh, immigration policies, immigration enforcement, could you give a basic overview of how our immigration policies got to where they are today? Yes, I can. And I, I apologize if this is somewhat limited and brief. I am not a legal scholar. I am, you know, getting my training in public health science and specifically community health. So um, I apologize if there's legal expertise, experts out there, lawyers, legal advocates who would, you know, correct me or, or provide details. So I want to provide that quick disclaimer before I get into this. But I do think, Jeff, that this is an important context to understand um, uh, to sort of um, help everyone understand why we did the study when we did and like what were all the factors and forces that sort of coalesced together to result in the situation that we felt was so important to document systematically through a scientific study, right? So the United States has had a very long and torrid immigration um, history. This country is a nation of immigrants. But what is interesting is how this nation has treated its immigrants. Um, it's a very interesting, long story. But I think that you know what's most important to understand is that for the last you know couple decades, immigration in the United States has become highly politicized, um, and it's been used as kind of a, a touchstone um, for different administrations because it has become such a um, you know such a high stakes topic. And I think that what we've really seen over the past few administrations, you know, Republican, Democratic, is sort of, I wouldn't necessarily say an unwillingness, although you could argue for some of the, some of the Republican administrations have, you know, been unwilling. Other Democratic administrations have been unable or have said they've been unable to do what we need, what I would 
argue for that we need is, is comprehensive immigration reform. So beyond that kind of legal political wrangling, what I've noticed is that there is this undercurrent of xenophobia or like, you know, having a fear of people on the outside coming in. We've seen a lot of this anti-immigrant rhetoric coming up in the past 10 years pitting immigrants as bad people, people invading this country. And what we've really seen, not only, you know, not, not just what the Trump administration has been doing, but over the past few administrations is what we like to call crimmigration or like the criminalization of immigrants. Um, and so the idea here is to keep people out and then to make it really hard for people who are already here to you know, move, move upward and thrive in their lives and to basically punish them for being here. And also in administration, in, in, in policy for immigration the past couple of years, we've seen a lot of what I would say would be like kind of like band-aid solutions, like offering people different various levels of temporary protection or like temporary status. And that is what I've seen in terms of um, immigration policy that's actually been enacted, right? It's just kind of temporary protection where there's always this threat of withdrawing that protection, even with just the administration changing hands. And we saw that in real life when the Trump administration attempted to rescind the Dreamers Act um, that was put forth by the Obama administration. So in general, immigrants and immigration is highly politicized. And there's this undercurrent of, like I said, uh, criminalization of immigrants and a very like responding to immigration in a very criminal criminal like justice system based way mm. okay um with with that context that we established here could you give me a uh, could you give a description for the listeners of what the between the line study is but also why is it such an important study to do now mm -hmm. sure i'd be happy to jeff so the Between the Lines study, or Entre Lineas in Spanish, um, is a mixed methods pilot study uh, to understand the health and behavioral impacts of parental deportation. Uh, this study was funded by the National Institutes of Health under their um, R21 mechanism. And we are focusing on the US born children of Mexican immigrants. And so the purpose of the study is twofold. It is a pilot study. So we are emphasizing testing the feasibility of new methodologies to identify, recruit and retain Mexican Im immigrant families in a longitudinal study um, and comparing outcomes um, between and within families with differing exposures to immigration enforcement over time. So we are what we wanted to test those methodologies because this population is really hard to gather systematic data from, understandably. And then, of course, we also wanted to describe the impacts of um, parental deportation and how those ripple out um, from the children and the families to their families, to their communities, and so forth, so forth. Because there really is um, very limited data, especially longitudinal data, on the impacts of these of immigration policies over time. A lot of people like to think, you know, right at the moment that the deportation order is signed and the person is picked up and shipped off, that's the end of it. But that is clearly not the case. And our study helps to unpack that um, over time and, and sort of unpack the different um, consequences of this kind of immigration policy that most people would like to think as one and done, you know, mm -hmm. and clean, when in fact it's incredibly um, messy. So for this study, what we did is we recruited 
families that were separated by deportation. So that means that um, we recruited for each one of those separated families, um, and these families were recruited all over the country. We recruited a deported parent at the US-Mexico border. Um, so we had teams um, for the study that would be posted up at different deportation centers at different border towns um, like Tijuana, Nogales. And so when ICE would come with a van of people that they had just you know, brought over the border and would kind of just drop them off, our staff members would go through and screen um, screen these individuals to see if we could find parents who'd be willing and eligible to participate in the study. And then once we had located um, a deported parent who was eligible to participate, we would ask them to act as a gatekeeper for us um, to connect us back to their family in the United States. And then we would follow up with their family in the United States, wherever the family was located and try to recruit one adult caregiver and one child between the ages of 13 and 17. And so together, um, the deported parent the caregiver and the child would form what we call a separated family. So we recruited 50 of those separated families from all over the country by um, first starting with the deported parents of the US-Mexico border. And then we also had a second group of families that, which would be our like comparison or control families. And these are families that are very similar to our separated families, but they have not yet experienced, thank goodness, uh, the deportation of a parent. So in those families, there's a caregiver, um, at least a, a caregiver who participates in the study and at least one caregiver in the study or in the family who is at risk for deportation but has not yet been deported. So someone who's undocumented. Um, and then we also recruited a child between the ages of 13 and 17 to participate. And those families were also recruited all over the country as well through different avenues like community-based organizations, um, through uh, community health leaders like promotoras um, and we wanted to recruit them in areas where we had already recruited a separated family so we could make a little bit more of a, a stronger comparison between the two families right mm -hmm. um, and so that, that's basically the design of the study we would recruit families on a rolling basis um, from all over the country and we would conduct um, baseline surveys over the phone with the caregiver and the child then we'd follow up with the caregiver and the child over in the deported parent if as needed for the separated families, but not for the non-separated families. We'd follow up with them once a month over the next six months, um, doing monthly contact with them, collecting more data. Then we would do at the six month mark, a follow-up um, or like exit uh, survey mm -hmm. to complement the baseline survey that we did at the beginning of the study. And then for a subsample of separated and non-separated caregiver and child pairs, we will also do a, um, in-depth qualitative interview over the phone or by Zoom um, with some of these families to collect some of this more like lived, uh, nuanced, more rich data about their experiences. So, you know, this is a very complex study, lots of moving pieces, lots of things going on. Um, and, you know, I could go on forever and ever about the design of the study because it is quite complex. Even though it is a small pilot study, there is a lot going on. But mm -hmm. in a nutshell, um, that's what the Between the Lines studies comprised of. So there, there's something that you said that I actually want to touch upon um, mm -hmm. for for uh, something that I think is interesting. Um, and you mentioned about how there's a lack of longitudinal studies that focus on this. Do you know what the if there what the reasons as to why that would be the case? Yeah, well, I definitely can speak about that a little bit. I mean, first and foremost, it's really hard to conduct longitudinal studies. Mm -hmm. You need time, you need resources, you need expertise. 
Um, and it's just, you know, a lot easier to just come in, get your data for one time point and just have it, you know, one and done. But a longitudinal study, you have to stay with your participants over time. You have to be able to collect data over time from them, you know, and inevitably there are participants that are lost to follow up because lots of things happen in their lives. And it's, you know, it's very difficult to do that. So in general, I think one of the main reasons is just, it's a heavy lift to do mm -hmm. any kind of longitudinal study. And then if you add in the other, um, the other factors that we were dealing with for this study that make it even more complex and even more of a heavier lift, um, I totally understand now uh, being at the tail end of the study, why I haven't seen a lot of these studies and a lot of these, um, these projects published about, you know, um, in, in papers and, and reports because mm -hmm. it is incredibly hard. Can you um can you go into a little bit about like what the importance of this like why is this study so important especially now? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no. Well, I can I'll preface this by saying that I am so glad that we have voted Trump out of the office because mm -hmm. I am so happy to be writing all these reports and papers about the study <laughs> and be able to refer to him as former President Trump and the former Trump administration and everything that they did. Um, because really what we saw during the Trump administration was just an unprecedented targeting and scaling up of in interior immigration enforcement removal. So I'm talking about activities done by ICE. The, so, you know, the, the um, interior customs, border customs, oh, I'm forgetting the acronym right now, but um, the their activities versus that of border control, which most people hear about and know about through the media because of the horrible family separations we saw at the border um, for asylum seekers that were coming over. So that the Trump administration, you know, they definitely made that, they definitely, um, how would I say it? They definitely allowed that to happen. They ordered their administration to separate families at the border. And so border, con border control was definitely doing that. But behind the scenes, the Trump administration also stepped up, like I said, their interior immigration enforcement rules. So that means, you know, identifying people, getting deportation orders, detaining those people, and then deporting them. So in 2017, President Trump, right after he had taken office, he actually enacted two executive orders that basically targeted anyone who was who did not have their papers or was undocumented, anyone for removal. And this is very different than previous administrations like the Obama administration, which had removed a lot of people and there were you know, a couple thousand deportations under Obama as well. But the Obama administration focused more on those individuals with a criminal record. And so, you know, it was a certain kind of individual that was being targeted and removed by the Obama administration. But by opening up the focus to literally anyone without papers, the Trump administration started going after individuals who'd lived here for many, many years, like 20 years plus, who have families, who have are integrated and stable in their communities and who may not necessarily have committed any crime at all in their lives and are a contributing member of society, right? Mm -hmm. So that kind of, um, you know, like unprecedented immigration enforcement orders from the very top just basically set ICE free to do what it does best, right? So I kind of see it like he took the bridle off the beast um, or the muzzle off the beast because ICE went immediately and started doing these huge scale, like very costly raids on poultry farms and meatpacking places. Um, and then, you know, just started going out in the community in a very systematic and very 
energetic way and you know started disappearing people off the streets so this kind of unprecedented enforcement of immigration law was the reason why we thought it was so important to do this study because we were just seeing so many families um, being affected by this so many shattered families um, all over the country we were just like we have to be able to document what's going on here because nobody is collecting this kind of data there's a lot of emotional um you know like uh, news stories coming out and videos online and, mm -hmm. and people were aware of it but we needed to start collecting this evidence systematically so that we could hold people accountable and try to rectify the problem you know the the impacts of this kind of immigration enforcement during the administration while it was going on as well as afterward try to help pick up the pieces but to do that you really need to have good evidence um of everything that's going on right mm -hmm. so that it's never so that people can turn around and say well that didn't happen and this didn't happen i was going to say so with with all of with that being said um and the like showing the importance of it what did you start seeing like emerging themes from the actual study itself yeah definitely i can definitely talk about that well we have we have you know, finding preliminary findings, and we're doing analysis of the data right now as well. Mm -hmm. um, we have preliminary findings from our quantitative surveys, the both the baseline and the follow-up. And we also have findings from our qualitative interviews that we did with caregivers and children that were affected by this, or were at risk. Because remember, we have the separated families and the non-separated families. So you know, speaking to the evidence that we've already found, it's the magnitude of the negative impacts on children following a parental deportation is just overwhelming to mm -hmm. everybody who worked on the study and myself included having collected the data myself from children we've seen just so many different aspects of child of, the, of children's lives being affected by one event one singular event where the parent was taken from them primarily for many children the the actual de detainment and deportation event is incredibly traumatic and violent. A lot of these children witnessed their fa their family members being taken from them, or you know came home to an empty house one day, or you know went with their family to immigration court expecting to have a positive outcome when really they were just going to take their parent from them right there. I, I do want to. Could you explain that a little bit to the listeners about mm -hmm. immigration or deportation being a violent event like what, yeah. could you just dig into that a little bit more right perfect yeah so i'm using the you know this violence framework to think about this um i think it because i'm coming from a, a like a public health like population level perspective and what i mean when i talk about violence is not necessarily physical violence like you know physically uh, hurting people although we've seen that in social media videos um, but what I'm talking more is about the overall experience the children who you know witnessed this this removal of their dad of their mom were incredibly traumatized by what happened and they were traumatized because of the violence of the of the situation some of the kids had to translate for ice between the ice police oh for their parents because they can't speak you know they couldn't speak the language and that in itself to me is violent like you might as well just it, what we saw here was just like the shattering of the child's reality and their life and then once the parent has been you know is has been taken and how, how sometimes the parents were detained for months in, in in centers and the kid couldn't even talk to them or didn't know where they were and then suddenly they get a notification or a call from the parent 
one day that, oh, they're in Mexico now, they've been deported. So it's like a car crash when I think about it really at the tail end, it's violent in the way, same way that a car crash is. And that's what I mean when I talk about how this event is incredibly violent and traumatic for kids. And what we've seen in this study is very, is evidence of very deep mental health impacts. Like we were seeing symptomologies among our kids in the study of anxiety and depression, suicide ideation, suicidal attempts. Um, it's just mind-boggling the way that these kids have been impacted and that's just their mental and and their mental health physically we've also seen things like eating disorders um self-harm and disordered um sleep troubles with sleep panic attacks that kind of thing and then even beyond the child themselves like their body and their mind and their spirit um we've also seen very devastating effects to their family life like the dynamics and the relationship in the family and then even economically you know many times it's the fathers who get deported and it's the fathers who are often the main breadwinners for these families so suddenly the the mother or the or the caregiver left at home is 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 left to figure out how am i going to pay rent like how am i going to pay these bills and the kids often have to take get jobs take longer hours drop out of school um or the parents themselves have to take longer hours and they can't be home as much anymore because they need to cover the cost so the children are at home by themselves to their own devices having to take care of younger siblings. So there's a lot of family and economic disruption. I think just hearing that, um, I think really illustrates the importance of this too as well, the study, um, because like from my, my perspective at least is you kind of see what goes on in the news and you see everything that happens, um, but you don't know the after that, it's like dropped, like there's no, there's like no mm -hmm. continuation, correct? Um, mm -hmm. With these families and with these children. Um, ha is there any research or, um, or in your expertise, um, because it seems like that the, these policies have created a cohort of children that are going to be suffering um, from really bad adverse childhood experiences, from a lot of trauma. Is there mm -hmm. any research of like what could potentially be seen later on down the line? What other things may develop with them uh, by any chance? So unfortunately you're highlighting another, another uh, you know, you're highlighting another gap in, in our knowledge. Mm -hmm. Like not only do we lack research and systematic empirical research about what happens to the, to a child like right after the deportation and maybe six months after, which is longitudinal, but not as longitudinal as I would like. You know, I think mm -hmm. that these, these impacts can ripple over the course of a child's life trajectory, like over years, right? Yep. But there's not a lot of research on that, again, because it's super, super hard to do that. And so we're not really quite sure how this, this might manifest and affect a child, you know, over the course of their life. There is some research about participation in the, the DACA or DREAMers program. I think there's some more longitudinal studies that kind of track the positive impacts of having a protected status like the DREAMers program and how that affects um, the, the productivity of these young people who are part of that program. But we aren't really sure what happens in the complete opposite situation when these, these, family, when these families are shattered and they're left to pick up the pieces. I will say that I often 
one really important angle of this study, which sets it apart from any other kind of study that I've seen, is its focus on US citizen kids, okay? So mm -hmm. these are kids that were born here in the United States. They are protected US citizens, where while their, their parents or caregivers may not be, and other members of their family may not be, because many of them come from mixed status families, where they might have a brother, an aunt, an uncle, who is also undocumented, living in the same house or in the same community. So the important angle here is their their status as citizens right this country is supposed to protect the rights and the and safeguard the well-being of its citizens right mm -hmm. so it's interesting that this kind of policy which was set forth as a national security policy to protect our u.s citizens from the invading immigrants from Central and South American countries is causing this level and magnitude of harm to citizens, right? Yep. And so when you think about it, who are these kids? They're citizen kids all over the country between the ages of 13 and 17. They will mature into adults and they will have the same rights and responsibilities as any other American ch white child here in this country, right? They will, you know, eventually be, be looking to find their place in society right and they'll mm -hmm. be able to vote right they'll they'll be you know called upon to to sort of become part of the system and so this is what we're doing to uh young people who are eventually going to be our, our working populace and 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 feed you know pay into social security and all that kind of thing but what we're doing is we're basically handicapping these young people because we are you know through immigration policy, through the legal system, we're causing this kind of violence without really thinking about, oh, what are the consequences long-term in this, right? Mm -hmm. And we're not thinking about the consequences on citizens who, you know, will, will eventually form a very big part of our population. You know, Latinos are one of the largest minority groups and they're the, one of the fastest growing. They're extremely young. Many young people live in, uh, many young people um, in this country are from like, you know, non-white backgrounds, including Latinos. There's about four to five million people, million children, U.S. citizen children right now with at least one undocumented parent. So that's millions of kids that we're talking about who could potentially be affected or have already been affected. So that, and you think about them growing up, that's a huge segment of the population that we're talking about. And there could be many costs to us, like, for instance, talk, uh, along the lines of the, the mental health impacts, if these mental health consequences on these kids are not addressed, they could eventually cost the healthcare system a lot of resources because mm -hmm. they're gonna need counseling, they're gonna need therapy, they might develop other, you know, other 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 issues over time, right? But we're not really quite sure. Like we're not we we don't have a lot of this information. I mean, a lot of it sounds like common sense. If yeah. you traumatize a child and yeah. then you leave them to your own to their own devices, what do you think is going to happen? Do you, some of them might be able to um, quote unquote pull themselves up by their bootstraps, but we can't just assume that you know children. I mean, to be honest, it is it is true. I will say that children are incredibly resilient. I am astounded every day by the strength of these kids and these families in our study um, and they are incredibly resilient but sometimes it's just not enough and there are good days and bad days and nope. um you know we can't just assume that like it will it will be okay right 
thank you for describing honestly, like just kind of everything that the study uh, that, that you were doing and just kind of the gaps in knowledge and stuff too, because I think it'll be really um, helpful for the listeners um, to actually kind of hear about this. Um, because I think I have a tendency to believe that sometimes we have a very short time frame of our consciousness on certain issues um, <laughs> as, sure. a, as a general yeah. populace. So uh-huh. um, I, do, I do really appreciate uh, that. I want to shift a little bit to, because uh-huh. we have some um, questions specifically regarding like COVID-19 uh, because of everything going on right now. Of course. Um, could you speak about how the pand- the ongoing pandemic uh, is actually affecting um, Latino immigrant populations in particular or mm-hmm. uh, these children too as well? Mm-hmm. Perfect. Yeah, I can talk a little bit about that. The, the study had been up and running for about like 10 months or so before the pandemic actually hit. But so like I would say the last half of the study, we were um, definitely collecting data from the families during the pandemic. So we were able to kind of see some of the impacts that the pandemic has had on the the family's unique situations. Um, So that that being once again, having a parent deported or having a parent um, who is at risk of being deported, right? Mm -hmm. So primarily what we've seen is that the pandemic definitely has laid bare some of these very entrenched health disparities that affect many communities of color, you know, um, our Native American friends, um, African Americans, and also Latinos and Latino immigrants, okay? So what we've seen, particularly in our our families, and I can talk a little bit about some of the other work that I've been doing in Philadelphia with Latino immigrants because it's very pandemic related, but with our families in between the lines, we saw a lot of increased stress um, and uncertainty uh, when the pandemic rolled around, you know, because they, a lot of the families were, because of the economic disruption after the parental deportation, um, a lot of the families, unfortunately, a lot of them serve, like were in the service industry um, or were farm workers. Um, and those jobs are, became very unstable during the pandemic. So it was really difficult for them. They had to cut down their hours um, or lost their jobs completely, or they were deemed an essential worker and had to continue going to work, but weren't given appropriate PPE to protect them or training or anything like that. So that they were then, you know, they were exposed, I think at a higher rate to um, COVID than, than other groups. So we definitely have seen Um, higher rates of infection for Latinos all across the country in terms of COVID, as well as quite low rates of testing because of all the, some of the structural and social testing um, barriers that were put up that just made it really difficult for them to get tested. And now with the advent of the vaccine, we're also seeing lots of challenges um, in getting these communities vaccinated as well. Did you, could you, um, could you go into a little bit of like what those structural challenges actually may be for the the uh, populations? Do you think do you want to know about structural challenges related to testing or or vaccination? Because they're a little some of them are shared, but some of them are unique to the yeah to like what we're talking about. If you um if you honestly wouldn't mind going into like some of the structural uh, problems with like access to testing at first, and then mm-hmm. just a little bit on the vaccination part too as well, since that's starting the rollout now. Sure, no problem. So I'm actually part of a group called um, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. um, called the Latino Health Collective. 
um, which was convened by um, my uh, dissertation chair and boss and mentor, Dr. Ana Martinez Donate, to um, sort of like gather everyone in the city of Philadelphia who's working with Latinos and Latino immigrants in the city to gather them together at the same table so we could talk about the effect that, that the pandemic was having on um, this community and you know, pull our resources, pull our knowledge to be able to respond to the emerging needs of this community in Philadelphia. So I know, I, I mean, I'm very uh, connected to what's going on with uh, Latinos and Latino immigrants in Philadelphia, but I imagine that the kinds of obstacles that they're experiencing in this city can extend to many different urban centers across the United States. So in terms of testing, what we saw was, um, you know, testing being offered at hours that weren't necessarily uh, like convenient to Latinos who were working like different jobs. Mm -hmm. So like, it was really hard. Like they had to go to the testing um, and instead of the testing coming to them. And then there was like disruption in like uh, the people being notified of their testing results. Like a lot of them, they just assumed that if no one called them back, it would be a negative test, but um, and that only if someone called them back, it would be a positive test. There was a lot of miscommunication and confusion about, about testing. Like when do you get tested? How often, you know, how often do you need to get tested? Um, and, you know, how do you get tested when you're supposed to be isolating as much as you can and quarantining? And then of course, there's the language barrier, which always comes up when we're talking with about Latinos and Latino immigrants. Um, where just the services and, and, and information is not disseminated in Spanish in a timely manner so that a lot of misinformation confusion takes root first. And then by the time, you know, the language, the language appropriate materials roll out, there's already another barrier of like distrust and, and misinformation mm. that has to be overcome then. So that's with testing. Um, and now with vaccination, um, we're, we're kind of seeing the same thing where this community is being passed over um, for, for targeted efforts at vaccination, which is interesting because Latinos, Latino immigrants are, they form a huge part of the essential workers that are yeah. still working, like picking the fruit in the fields, bagging your groceries. So they're exposed at a higher rate, but the vaccination efforts are, you know, in Philadelphia, we can see that they're being rolled out in areas of the city where Latino, Latino immigrants don't live, where a different, a different, profile socioeconomic profile is right mm -hmm. um and also like the coordination of some of this um of the vaccination efforts is being focused on other groups um and not necessarily on latinos latino immigrants because there is there is a little bit of of a struggle between organizations in philadelphia to like um come together and focus and um create a a, a plan that specifically aims at serving this kind of this community right yeah uh could you why do you think that is actually that there's that struggle um to come together and kind of survey that community yeah that's a really good question and i know like every time we meet with the latino health collective it it, it seems like it seems like an a, a less answerable question for me and, and personally, but, you know, I think some of it is like a little bit of politics, you know, a lot of these mm -hmm. organizations are competing for the same funding, the same resources from the city. Um, and a lot of these organizations are incredibly protective about uh, from their staff and the way that they work. And um, they're all committed to serving this community, but many of them have their own version of how they should do it. And it's very hard for them to like 
kind of compromise and find a common plan and a common way forward. I mean, we're working with the Latino Health Collective in Philly to create a set of strategies for increasing vaccination efforts in the city, focusing on reducing the disparity in Latinos. Um, that's being that's going to be approved by the Latino Health Collective and other local groups that we can send to the city and say, here's our recommendations, here's the strategies that we have endorsed that we think will work best to increase vaccination efforts for this particular group. So we are on the path forward, and mm -hmm. I think we're moving at a fast rate, but it it took a lot to get there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I, I have a, a question from somebody actually um, that uh, a producer of the podcast that they wanted to ask. So mm -hmm. um, kind of speaking to a little bit of the, um, uh, the structural problems when it comes to testing, vaccinations, things along those lines. Uh, research shows that shifting immigration policies under the Trump administration, right, they led to this increased fear among the immigrant community. And it led to many individuals and families foregoing certain programs and services such as Medicaid or CHIP and etc. Um, can you speak to that a little bit more? Um, what some of the root causes of why that might be the case, but then also, how can we curb and reverse that trend? Mm -hmm. That's a really good question. I'm glad that the producer of the podcast asked that because I think that's really, really important considering the fact that many of these programs like CHIP and SNAP or WIC benefits, uh, Medicaid, those programs are there to support these children who yep. are once again U.S. citizen children, right? So they are there for them. And I will say that in general, um, before, you know, this kind of <laughs> before the mess that the Trump administration created, generally Latino immigrant families were, were willing to, to access these programs, not for their adults or anything like that. Um, so this is counter to this anti-immigrant rhetoric that these families are just welfare families and things like that. What, they're, what we've seen them do in the past is that they will access these services for the children. They prioritize the health and well-being of their children. So Latino immigrant families will access things like CHIP to make sure that their kids have the highest quality of care, even if they don't have that themselves. They're always thinking about their children, right? So under the Trump administration, it became very clear that you know fear is a very, very strong behavioral factor. And we saw with the stepped up immigration, people literally disappearing off the streets, that the Latino immigrant community was moving more and more underground. You know, they were kind of retreating from their community. And part of that retreating to protect, you know, closing the, closing, I guess I want to say closing the wagons, circling the wagons a little bit. Part of that retreating was withdrawing from some of these programs because there was misinformation online as well as some very, um, exclusionary policies that the Trump administration put forth like with public charge where they were barring people um, you know from from engaging in that program if they you know basically if they met characteristics that many Latino immigrant immigrant families meet um, they withdrew from those those programs in order to protect themselves and to protect their families and I think that was a really sad sad impact of the the immigration enforcement Mm -hmm. um, to, to result, causing these families to forego these programs that are there for them to support the, the children, right? Yeah. It's a loss of trust, I think, because it became really clear that um, 
you know, I think they really, they really were thinking that like any kind of document that has their name or the name of their family or their address or things like that, there was a lot that they started to realize being documented in this way, documented in accessing these programs for their kids might come back and, and result in an immigration and like removal of somebody. Right. Yeah. Um, and like we saw a little bit of that fear when the when Trump was going to you know remove the DACA program, he would have been left with a huge database of people and their information, <laughs> you know the names of themselves, their families, there you know right for the picking, right? Mm -hmm. So like I don't I don't necessarily think that their fears were misplaced. I think definitely yeah. their fears were incredibly genuine, and this is why they sort of withdrew from some of these um, these programs or uh, like we heard from a lot of our families in between the lines, they would just, um, when the deadline would be, so a lot of these programs you have to reapply every few years or every year, okay. um, right? So like some, so they would just kind of let that deadline pass and because of the pandemic and also because of the increased immigration enforcement, the shock and trauma of having a parent deported they would just kind of not re, like they wouldn't get back in the application process or like not renew that application to continue receiving those services for whatever reason. There could be many reasons, fear included, mm -hmm. um, as well as misinformation and you know, uh, just a lot of different factors there. So, unfortunately, I did think I think we saw that where the need for these programs went you know increased, but yeah. the demand decreased right because yeah. of these external factors right affecting their decision making so. yeah so the second part of that question from uh morgan i should mm -hmm. shout her out for the great question um is what ways do we actually go about rebuilding that trust um with the community wow that's a really really good question um and you know, I think it's going to take, it's going to take a long time. It's going to take us a long time to rectify the damage that has been done to these families and to these children by the former Trump administration, right? Mm -hmm. But it's not an insurmountable hill, right? I really do think that we can get there and we can sort of rebuild some of what's been lost. Um, if we're very meaningful um, and very purposeful about how we do it, in terms of the mistrust and misinformation, that's a that's a big a big barrier. But I do, but you know, studies have shown, and our experience in this study has shown that if you for the Latino community, they're an incredibly, they have an incredible community cohesion. They have very strong social ties and social networks, and they you know they really work to lift each other up, and therefore they really value the opinion of trusted people in their community. So. I think that it's really important to identify who are these trusted individuals in these communities, who are the gatekeepers? You know, is it mm. this doctor? Is it that promotor or community health leader? Is it this church and this pastor? Who are the people that are trusted? And kind of work through them to help build, rebuild some of this, this trust and combat some of this misinformation. Because like, you know, flyers and a website and you know, just posting just, you know, or things on post, so posts on social media, that's not going to be enough to, you know, help to get people to a point where they're ready to like reemerge and like re-engage. You really need to rely on the people that they trust most, the ones that are part of their network. So 
I think that it's really important to use trusted individuals to build trust. And one of the things that they could do is using these trusted individuals to help like reintroduce Latino immigrant families to the programs that they might have that they might never have access or they might have lapsed their access with and walk them through the process of reapplying and just assuring them along the way, making sure everything is clear and transparent, you know, that this is not going to result in a detainment or a deportation, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then a second, a second point to that would be to frame everything um, in terms of the needs of their children because Latino immigrant families are, are incredibly close knit and and the children are some of the most important people in the community like it's 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 definitely like the community comes together to help raise a child so if you if you frame some of this these efforts to rebuild trust as you know as like this is what your kids need like we, you need these programs or like we we're here to help you and, and but mainly also to help your your kids um i think that will help too because it um it kind of speaks to their priorities that they always had, right? Yeah. Um, thank you, thank you for the the answer um, to like how we can kind of address um, uh, the, those issues of trust um, in those communities. I want to um, kind of starting to wrap it up a little bit here. We talked a lot about like the enforcement, um, immigration enforcement underneath Trump. How, mm -hmm. was it, how it was very violent, the deportations. We talked a lot about, you know, like how the Trump administration led to this increased fear among immigrant communities and what your, um, the Between the Lines study tried to look at about the emerging themes. With that all being said, with the Biden administration mm. actually being in, in power now, um, we've seen several executive orders over the past uh, month, month and a half. Mm -hmm. Um, month of fortifying DACA, 100-day deportation moratorium, which I know that they're mm -hmm. fighting actually in Texas right now. Mm -hmm. um, the creation of a task force, the reunified, uh, reunify separate families. And then I know today they actually released a, um, the comprehensive immigration bill mm -hmm. um, that they were looking at, which also allowed for um, you know, providing a pathway to citizenship for, I think, I believe about 11 million um, undocumented immigrants over a time frame in like eight years instead of the 11 years, I believe. Um, also looking at prioritizing border, uh, smart border controls, which like cracking down on criminal organizations and managing uh -huh. protecting, uh, the border communities. But uh -huh. then also thinking that they want to address the root cause of immigration by starting from the source or supporting asylum seekers and other vulnerable populations. Now, there's a lot more to this, um, but that a lot of that's in the effort to try and undo the Trump administration's policies. Mm -hmm. you, you mentioned in your APHA virtual poster, which I suggest all of our listeners to go um, to go watch, about the policy level change as a measure to address this violence and trauma of immigration mm -hmm. enforcement. Mm -hmm. So do you think that the Biden administration has gone far enough? And if they have not gone far enough, mm. what do you believe to be the critical policies that they need to enact to actually address this issue? Mm -hmm. mm. That's a great question. And that's something that I've been thinking about, 
you know, since Biden took office and I, and I was keeping track of those executive orders. And also I've been re reviewing the, his, uh, his bill that he's sending to Congress with a lot of those um, different domains that you mentioned mm -hmm. in terms of immigration reform. And I do have a couple thoughts about that, but it is, it is emerging too, because every day I kind of yeah. sit and think about, and I'm like, oh, well, I'm not sure about that, you know, cause I, I, I can't purport to say that I have all the answers for sure. Um, but I, I, I do think, you know, most people right now listening to this podcast would initially, you know, having heard what I've said about the study and the damage and the violence, things like that, a lot of people would, you know, just, you know, let's start with just defunding ICE, just defund ICE, you know, get rid of it entirely. But I want to caution everyone listening to this that we have to act within the parameters of reality that we're that we're working in, right? It is highly unlikely that you know Biden or any administrations in this era would would you know go so far as to abolish completely ICE, right? I mm -hmm. I think that is highly unlikely, and I prefer to put my effort and energy behind initiatives that. Are a little bit more a little quicker you know because immigration because policy reform and immigration reform is so is so lengthy like it takes a long time so we have to really think about what we can do now right and i really so i really want to caution everyone to just think about that like it's you know ideally i do wish that ice wasn't here and like wasn't doing the things that it was doing but it's here it's probably here to stay and so we need to think about immigration reform um that can be we need to think about, I think about it like humanizing immigration reform, making it more humane, making mm -hmm. it more family friendly. And I will say that the Biden administration acted quickly within the first, you know, uh, like the first 20 or 30 days of his administration, he was sending out their executive orders to stop ICE from deporting people, although I think ICE rebelled a little bit and ended up deporting people anyways, which was, I, you know. Yeah, I think also they all they there was deportations um, from immigrants from Haiti, I believe. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. So like that would be interesting seeing him try to wrangle in ICE because they've been operating kind of with like a blank check from the Trump administration. So all of a sudden to be told like, oh, you can't do this or can't do that. I'm, I, I think it's definitely going to create some tension and there's probably going to have to be a lot of like like wrangling and, and supervision over them to make sure that they they follow you know the new rules um but his executive orders to you know create a task force to start reunifying the families that were separated at the border i think that's excellent um and you know the 100 day moratorium that's great i will say also that his bill for immigration reform has some pieces in there that i think are great I, I, I would like to see how they play out and, and maybe see them a little bit more fleshed out and of course see how far this gets in Congress because immigration reform is a sticky subject on both sides um, for Democrats and Republicans. And it's something that everyone feels incredibly strongly about. So I'm interested to see how far this gets. But I do think that um, the push by the Biden administration to keep families together is incredibly important because there was a you know an effort by the Trump administration to pull families apart you know and so i yeah. think it's really important this idea of keeping families together and trying and and, and you know and part of that i hope that the, the Biden administration not only works to keep future families together but to help like this reunifying families and helping families rebuild from this because it is a lot more of a violent and traumatic event than i think people really understand and i think we're definitely going to need to support like the families in between the lines and others that have gone through this 
support them in the coming years to sort of get back to a more stable state. Um, and one thing that I also liked from his immigration bill that I think is really important that a lot of people don't talk about is addressing the root causes of migration. A lot of immigration reform in the United States has been focused internally, like what's what's going on in the United States? What do we have to do here? How do we protect our citizens, national security, that kind of thing? But not a lot of people talk about why people are migrating to this country. Why are they risking everything to come here and then living as a second secondary citizen without their papers for many, many years here, always under that threat that they could be deported? It's because of what's going on in their countries, right? It's because what, what's going on, those, those um, push factors that push them out of their countries and cause them to flee that way. The violence, you know, what the drug cartels are doing, the corruption, poverty. Um, so many different forces here. And I really appreciate that the Biden administration is looking to potentially use funding to help these countries um, like Honduras and, and, and El Salvador kind of like rebuild themselves a little bit so that, you know, maybe it won't be a, a decision that, every, that, their, that their families are making to leave their home country and leave their home communities and come here to the States, which is clearly anti-immigrant and a very difficult mm -hmm. place right now, right? Yeah. So I liked that, um, but I'd like to see. I'd like to see how this this plays out because I have a feeling that the United States government um, on both sides, Democrat and Republican, is going to have a big problem about with this international perspective and and supporting yeah. countries outside, right? You also mentioned a little bit in the presentation about policy change is slow, right? Mm -hmm. Especially in our countries. And you mentioned a lot about like community-based interventions in your mm -hmm. um, your presentation. Could you just elaborate a bit on those for the listeners about like what would those interventions entail? Yeah, so that uh, that is an area of expertise that I'm being trained in, in community health. And I'm trained to think about doing community-based research and also community-based interventions to promote health, right? Um, so like based on what we've seen with the between the lines families, I think there's definitely some interventions that we could we could like you know start rolling out immediately, right? Or should have been mm -hmm. doing yesterday, okay? Because it's clear that the families that experience parental deportation, they're going through a crisis, and there's a, and you kind of need like a crisis response. So I think if we had supportive programs, you know, aimed at supporting these families that go through this tragedy. Um, would help to mitigate or attenuate some of these negative consequences that we're seeing these kids and these families go through. Like, for instance, uh, I think it's really important to get counseling and make counseling available for these kids and their families because this experience is violent and traumatic. And so I think that's really important. Counseling, mental health screening, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. It's incredibly important, something that could definitely be done as community intervention with cooperation from local clinics and uh, community-based organizations, community health workers, um, physicians, that kind of thing. And then also like linking these families to care. I mean, when a deportation happens, there's so many different parts of the child and their family's life is impacted, like economically, socially. Um, their housing, that kind of thing. So it's it's critical to link these families to services that can help them, you know, make sure that there's enough food to eat, that the lights stay on, that the rent gets paid, um, and you know that the kids have enough, you know, care and support that they can, um, you know, start the the long healing process. And I think that critically, especially for these kids, it's really important to think about the school setting and academics and like how that 
how the schools and the school administration administrations can be leveraged to support the child since the child spends so much time in their school. I think the schools are uh, like a relatively untouched resource that we don't mm -hmm. often think about in public health. But if you're talking about child and family health, I think schools are incredibly useful um, to house some of these interventions and be part of the supportive system. And then also, I think that another strategy that I've seen advocacy groups doing already is sort of helping families prepare for the worst. A lot of what we heard in the study is this is that many families before this happens to them, a lot of them are just kind of like unwilling to talk about it, unwilling to kind of reckon with this possibility that a parent could be deported because it's so traumatic to even consider that possibility. And I totally understand why they might avoid talking about it and they might you know, avoid planning for it. But it's really important for families to have a plan to discuss things like where is the child going to live like how where you know where would the monies come from like how would we keep this house you know things like that so a, a really great intervention strategy would be um, to help families prepare for this like help them prepare a plan for what would happen because the the way that we've seen this roll out it's so much chaos um, and it's so messy and i think that strategies these kinds of strategies and community-based programs could help families before this happens to them while they're at risk, help them get a plan ready just in case and sort of like stock up and like prepare, right? And sort of potentially psychologically begin to reckon with the possibility that this might happen. Best case scenario, no, it never does, but you know, you can't be too careful, right? Especially with the indiscriminate enforcement that we saw. Yeah. And then programs that are there as kind of like a crisis response immediately after the event happens, if it happens. And then sort of like, I'm also envisioning like more long-term programs to help um, families as they move through like the six month point after this event, like the year point after this event, because as we've seen in this study, the needs change over time. There's a, there's like acute immediate consequences right when this happens, like a week, like within a month of the event or a week or something like that. And then like, you know, after a couple of weeks and a month or two later, three months, there's, there's different um, impacts that we see kind of happening. And so that means the needs change. So the responses need to change a little bit over time. So thank you very much. Um, I have one last question for you. And it's kind of, it is one of the um, questions that we ask all of the people that come on our podcast, just because we are a, you know, a policy and uh, development section, community health and uh, policy development section. We do a lot mm -hmm. of work with advocacy. Mm -hmm. um, so what resources or advice would you have for any of our listeners about advocating for the rights and health of Latino immigrants and their families? Mm. Mm. That's a really good question. So, you know, like, I will say like during the study and, and collecting the data and talking to the children and their families, like it, it was really hard. It was really difficult to hear this kind of pain from the families and these kids that I develop relationships with. And even to this day, I, I find myself, you know, still like remembering what it was like um, experiencing this alongside them. And in those moments of like, you know, extreme sadness and all the chaos, I, I, I found myself, you know, becoming like just full of like rage, you know, like I need to fight back. Like I want to bust down the doors of ice and like, you know, I, you know, just come in like guns blazing, like a Western movie. Right. Mm -hmm. 
But I think that what's really important when we're thinking about advocacy for, for the rights and the health of this, these groups is to not let our emotions overwhelm, overwhelm us, right? And keep us from moving forward and keep us from strategizing. Um, and so, because it's really easy to become overwhelmed. I totally get it. I'm overwhelmed almost every day for at least an hour or two before I can like check myself again. And it's really important when you're, when you're, you know, to not be overwhelmed by the immenseness of the issue and the pain and, and like, you know, moving forward with in that emotion, with that emotional reaction, moving forward without really talking to these immigrant families about what they actually need. You need to take a step back, take a breath and go and talk to them and say like, what are, what, what is going on right now? Like, how can I help? How can I advocate? Right? Because you don't want to move forward so fast that you eventually, you might actually cause harm. Right, so it's really important to include them in in the conversation, in the strategizing, right? Um, and more and more these days, I'm thinking about this idea that, like, you know, we don't need to be necessarily the voice for the voiceless here, because these immigrant communities and their families—they're not voiceless; they have a voice, but it's just it's not being heard right now. So like, but we don't need to stand, come in and step in and be that voice. We need to pass the mic. So I think when we're thinking about advocacy, it's really important to mobilize communities to advocate, you know, not necessarily for themselves, but to be part of that conversation in a meaningful way to understand their rights, which is incredibly important here. Um, because we understand their rights. It's written down in the constitution and other legal documents, but they may not understand their rights. So it's really important before we go off on the advocacy bandwagon to advocate for them, to understand that they can also be part of that advocacy and that it's a really great, a great way to um, encourage unity and to mobilize communities together to be part of that advocacy, to learn about their rights and to learn how they can protect themselves Right. Um, so I think it's easy in, in the midst of all this pain and feeling so angry about everything that's going on to just want to go off and, and lone wolf it. Right. Like me yeah. at the head of an army, like rolling in. All right. And I will, you know, I'll be the conqueror and I will, I will save them. Right. It's really easy to want to do that. But at the end, we have to think about what the point of the advocacy efforts are here. We, we want to think about the sustainability of it. And we have to think about this idea that like, we won't always be here as advocates necessarily. Um, so that we need to have, we need to create this um, sustainable movement so that when we are no longer here, that the community is able to, you know, protect themselves and, and in some ways advocate for themselves too. So that's really important, I think. Pass the mic. That is a fantastic way to end our episode. Um, Jamale, thank you so much for speaking um, with me today. Thanks for all your expertise, everything that you're doing, um, all the research that you were doing too and helping these communities. Um, thank you just so much for coming on. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. I, I, I'm tired. I'm having to like take some breaths because I can, I'm feeling myself getting worked up. I tend to work yeah. myself up into a frenzy, especially when it, you know, it's about immigration enforcement yeah. and like, and my family's like, I get really, woo, you know, I just need to take a breath and thank you so much for, for letting me, you know, 
be part of this space and to speak my mind. I really appreciate it. I'm not always able to spill my feelings out <laughs> and my thoughts out this way. So I really, really appreciate that. And thank you for making this, making this such like a, a positive experience for me. You are, you are very welcome. Thank you, everybody, for listening to today's episode of the Public Health Cast, where we put the public in public health. I was your host, Jeff Gillingham. I just want to say thank you to all the people that helped make this podcast possible, to Jamale for speaking with me today, and to, of course, you, the listener. Feel free to share this with anybody that you may know, even if they don't work in public health. And as always, take care of each other and push forward for health. Until next time.